Hello, and welcome to the Humumu Halloween Home Horror Hoedown. The podcast where we watch 31 horror movies throughout the hallowed month of October. Ranging from the critically acclaimed to film school projects gone gruesomely awry. And we take them all way too seriously. I'm your host, Mike Hommel. And I'm your host, Sully Hommel. Now warning, we use a ghoulish number of spoilers, so watch the movies first. Second warning, we don't know anything about anything, so don't take us seriously while we take these movies seriously. So today we are reviewing the original Halloween from 1978. Which we always planned on since we saw the 2018 version last year. Yes. This movie is exactly the same age as I am. It is. Which provides me an unusual frame of reference when watching what's going on in the movie. Does it? Yes, because there aren't very many movies where I can actually think to myself, this movie is this many years old. I can think, this movie is old or this movie is recent. But, I mean, we've talked a lot lately about how 2003 is something that feels recent, and it is not. not. That's so sad. When we were watching this movie, there were a few times where I'm like, oh, this movie is 41 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a really big number, actually. Yeah, somebody who's that old is really old. Right? Yikes. I mean, not to mention 45, but okay. That's probably fine. That's young at heart. I'm also fascinated by the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis was 19 years old at the time of filming and Mm -hmm. 20 when this movie came out. Like it it even says in the credits, introducing Jamie Lee Curtis. This was her first movie credit and it came shortly after her first IMDb credits, which I recently looked up. Because you ran into them in person. Yes, I was watching an episode of Columbo, as I do. A lot. Suddenly I'm like, wait, who is this cheeky waitress giving Columbo attitude about the donut he did not buy in her restaurant? And it was, in fact, Jamie Lee Curtis. And it was 1977, and she had three acting credits from that year. The Columbo, a Hardy Boys episode, (laughs) and something else, and I can't remember what it was. It was another, like, kind of murder mystery thing, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, Matlock or something like that. Yeah, I just find this fascinating because... I find Jamie Lee Curtis fascinating. That's good. Yeah. Let me preface anything that I'm going to say with, I don't have a lot to say about this movie, (laughs) except for one specific major thing. So I would like to say about Jamie Lee Curtis that I did not find her fascinating in this movie. I didn't find anybody fascinating. They were all just, huh. Her character was even designed to be like the least fascinating person she could be. Like, Very early on, when Lori, Linda, and Annie are walking to school, and they're all talking, and everybody's giving Lori a hard time about how she doesn't have a date, she hasn't had a date, whatever, and she says, guys think I'm too smart, and the note I made was, or could it be the turtleneck, the shapeless sweater, and those 
terrible <laughs> white tights. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, she just like her outfit was super drab. Her whole personality was super drab. Her haircut was super drab. Now, the one thing they did with her that I found kind of interesting is when we watched the 2018 movie, 40 years after this movie. Yes. It was set up as like, Michael is here and his ultimate nemesis, Laurie, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is coming at him and it's a showdown. Finally, this will determine who wins once and for all. Like, that's a big deal. And in this movie, interestingly, even though none of that was in the works or planned or talked about, she had this weird psychic connection with him. Like, a car would drive down the street that Michael was driving. Looks totally normal. You can't see who's in it. And she would walk watch that car and be like that's not right something is up here everything she was so on to him from the first second in a totally unrealistic insane way it was just like she was made to be his nemesis wow i did not pick up on that when you're talking about it yes yeah everyone else was oblivious right she was totally obsessive i interpreted that as her just being a little more aware of her surroundings than her that was like boy obsessed friends were it was definitely part of it but yeah i see what you're saying to counter that though Uh even though she eventually becomes his arch nemesis it's like two-thirds of the way through the movie before they actually meet i know she's the main character of this movie and she's peripheral to everything that's (laughs) happening for an hour and a half well i mean maybe michael's the main character since he's not peripheral to any of it i guess he's kind of peripheral to a lot of it too for a while yeah i mean she's the heroine of the movie and she does end up being that sort of except that there's very much no resolution in this movie that's that's one thing yeah um like she's just doing her thing kind of parallel to michael who's also doing his thing yeah and their things just happen to be very opposite one another you know he's running around murdering horny teenagers (laughs) and she's very dedicated to taking care of these two kids and just being very mature and grown up like it was very strange and i felt like it was a good counter to the fact that 40 years later she is entirely focused on dealing with this guy and it's (laughs) For the same reason, she's still intent on protecting the people who are important to her that she's responsible for. Yeah. But now she knows what's going on and she's there for it, which I assume she was also there for in all of the other movies that came after this one. Except the one about the Halloween masks in which she was not <laughs> there she wasn't and it was insane. <laughs> That's a very fun movie. I feel like their connection is well done in the sense that it kind of addressed both of those things, but also was pretty boring to watch. (laughs) Well, that's sort of how I felt about this movie is it just, it felt like forever that we're watching these girls do their chatting about boys and getting ready for things and babysitting sort of, like not in a way that is building any suspense or tension. They're just doing it. And I mean, I guess it's supposed to be character development, but they had no character. So <laughs> what are what are we watching? Everyone had a very stereotypical and one-sided character, it feel, felt like. Yeah. Like, we've, we talked about that during our review of It Chapter 2. Those mm-hmm. tags that people get where yeah. you're like, this is the guy who does this. This is the girl who acts like that. A, a great example of that is Loomis, the doctor... <laughs> Who, from the beginning, apparently from the moment this 
Michael was six years old and had killed his sister, he knew Michael was evil incarnate and has made it his life's mission (laughs) to go after him. Which makes him a terrible therapist. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So then the movie's about Laurie and the whole series, the whole franchise is about Laurie. But for most of the movie, it's Loomis who is very ineffectually chasing Michael. It's... Yeah, I don't know. Well, and then let's not forget that at the end of the movie, Laurie's been duking it out with Michael, managed to injure him repeatedly, which no one has ever done. And then, of course, Loomis comes in and saves the day a man with a gun can solve the problem. Or can he? Yeah, he he didn't. When he does shoot Michael, I almost said Jason, when he (laughs) shoots Michael, uh, Michael falls out a window, lands on the ground. We look out from up above on the ground and we see Michael down there. Mm. Then later we look down that same window. There's nobody on the ground. Ooh. Which we knew was going to happen because when we watched the 2018 version, there's a similar scene where Michael pushes Lori out a window Mm -hmm. and sees her down there all broken and whatnot, and then later looks out and she's gone. And you and I both were like, oh, we haven't seen the original, but that's definitely a callback to the original. Yeah, it's really obvious. Yeah. So that's fun, except in this movie, it's not fun because that's the end of the movie. Michael has disappeared from being on the ground, which means the movie's not really over because in... I don't want to say real life, but in in the next scene of this movie that was never made, his arm would come crashing in through the window and grab somebody who was too close to a window. Sure. Or at the very least, he's running away and they're still like, hey, we need to keep (laughs) looking for him. Like, there's zero resolution there when the bad guy who's been attacking you from out, you know, all every dark corner in the movie... Uh suddenly disappears and there are still dark corners around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and we, I mean, clearly he's fully capable of getting around after all these bullet holes. So, I mean, that's what I wonder is if because it was so early in slasherdom, they kind of felt like, okay, we've shot him with so many bullets. He he's dead. We're, even though he got up, he's going to be like dead somewhere else. And the audience knows that. Sure, that they would assume that he's crawled off to die somewhere and everything yeah. is okay. They'll find his body someday or whatever. But the music suggests that's not what they thought we <laughs> right. thought. I feel like early on in slasher movies, but perhaps also one of the first, hey, We've created something that we could monetize for decades to come (laughs) if we play this right. And there's talk, like a bunch of talk in the IMDb about John Carpenter talking about that and how he wanted this to just be this movie. And he got pushed into the whole chain of making it a slasher, you know, hero slasher, big character that went on forever. Did he have a scene that ended the movie that got cut off? Or was this how he wanted the movie to end? I kind of think that's, yeah. So he wanted it to be one of those like, ooh, let them figure out, you know, leave the audience wondering who really wins. I mean, you know. Horror classic ending. Sure. And out of the grave. But uh, it always makes me mad when a movie ends without actually ending. Mm -hmm. I made a very strong connection between this movie and Better Watch Out. Oh. In the sense that we, in both of those movies, we have very strong female characters Mm-hmm. who are aggressively protecting the people they have been put in charge of. Like, this, yeah. it's this, like, babysitter as feminist movement <laughs> kind of 
storyline. Yeah, and she did kind of the same thing where she's like, you guys stay here. I'm just going to go get this guy. Oh, yeah. There was no she was going to hide. I mean, she did hide, too, but she made sure that they were protected first. And she sort of did the, like, plover with a injured wing (laughs) sort of thing. Like, oh, chase me over here after she had protected them. and Very (laughs) plover-like. And Ashley from Better Watch Out did the same. And I just, I liked that. I liked that these were both characters who were in very traditionally female roles as babysitter, but were given the strength of a traditional female character. Like, it wasn't... Oh, look, these girls are strong like men. It was, this is female strength, which yeah, I, I liked. I thought was interesting. Well, and while we're talking about things we like, because that's probably going to end soon, <laughs> I feel like John Carpenter is a good composer, not a good director. Because the music in this movie was really well done. Like, it did a really good job of making things seem menacing when they super duper weren't. <laughs> right? Like, I like the theme he created. You oh, know, yeah. The, this is Michael's theme. And it like, okay, that really works. And anytime the car he was driving drew, drove by or, uh-huh. you know, he starts walking somewhere and nobody knows he's there yet, but the audience is very aware, so, you know, he's entering the scene. He's about to do things. I said the same thing about the 2018 version. I liked that kind of at this point in 2018, it feels very old-fashioned to do that right but i liked it being used in the 40 year version of the story as much as i liked it in the original yeah it felt good speaking of john carpenter it was fun to me to see that the kids were watching a scary movie they were watching the thing yeah the original but not the john carpenter <laughs> the thing it was the 19 what 50s or 60s yeah like 51 i think it was the really old one And John Carpenter didn't make his version of the thing until 1982. So... He was thinking about it. Right. He already had a fascination with that movie, apparently. And apparently some rights to use it. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) And then shortly after that, I assume, started working on doing his own version. Yeah. And to say something good that's not about this movie... (laughs) That's the one John Carpenter movie that I like, that I think is good. Like, it's a strong, solid movie. And I've seen several other of his movies, and they're bad. What else has he made? The Fog is hilariously terrible. And this is kind of my big topic of discussion for this whole review, but I'll just throw a piece of it in here, which is that critics and fans alike seem to think The Fog is this amazing, scary, intense movie. And it is just hilariously stupid. (laughs) And it's this weird thing. Which I sort of feel like is also how I would describe this movie. That's what I'm saying. It was not scary at all. And, you know, they they talked about in some IMDb discussion that the lack of blood was an intentional choice. There were lots of gory movies at this time. Uh And he was like, homage to Alfred Hitchcock. You don't need blood for this. Whatever. And that's fine. I'm fine with like what Alfred Hitchcock did, you know, where there's like stabbing, you see things happen and you're like, ooh, that must be terrible, even though I can't quite see it. Right. You never see the bloodless body. And then this one, you've got Michael sliding his knife across a girl's throat right in front of you and nothing happens. And she's just like, oh, no. 
Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. Not scary. No. Not scary. Just, and oh. I wonder, though, how much of that is desensitization, both because we ourselves have watched so many horror we movies. We definitely have. And because in the last 40 years, just entertainment itself in all of its forms has become more graphic, more um, intense. I know, but Alfred Hitchcock could do it. Yeah. And I just think about like, I, one of my notes on this movie is every kill is ludicrously bad. Like <laughs> Michael Myers, for a guy who can physically pick up an entire human being with one hand, yeah. he is terrible at strangling people. <laughs> he just, he's got his hands around this girl's throat for like five minutes as she's going, oh, Please stop. I don't like what you're doing. It just, he can't do it. In fact, in that scene, he pops up behind this girl in the car. Uh, I think it's Annie. And he grabs her around the throat, starts strangling her, I guess, maybe caressing her neck. And she's just sitting there, you know, she's unhappy about it, but trying to get away and she can't. But he's not killing her or stopping her from breathing. And he keeps trying that for a long time. And eventually he gives up and grabs his knife and cuts her throat. And like, Maybe he just doesn't have a lot of hand strength. Yeah, he doesn't have grip strength. Like, like he can he can grip enough to hold on to something. And then his muscles in his arm are really strong. Yes. He can lift that up. Yeah. But there's just, he doesn't have that like grasp. Yeah, I think it's character know. development. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Very detailed. Although I was very disappointed in, in most of the death scenes particularly the girls as they were being murdered in various ways because they just sort of didn't seem to really care his <laughs> they sister didn't mind. the we talked about it as it was happening it was right. so shocking when he stabs his sister like she has almost no reaction like she kind of slides down and you know falls over so you can <laughs> tell something is happening to her but she like doesn't have anything to say about the fact that he is plunging a knife into her repeatedly. Yeah. And oh, that I forgot about that whole flashback to right? that. And then he walks out of the house with a bloody knife as his parents are arriving home and they both just like stand on either side of him and stare at him. Yeah, that's the weirdest scene. It's it's not like people staring at him. It's like freeze frame, except they're all just standing there. And right? as the camera pulls back. Like his mom just sort of seems vaguely annoyed. Like yeah. it's the look she would give him if he were still up past his Well, bedtime. no, what I think is going on is she can see there's blood on the knife. And she's like, you walked out here from the house. That blood dripped on my floors <laughs> before you came out here. And I know it. You know why? Because the parents in this movie are also like the parents in Better Watch Out. There's a lot weirdly, of similarities. Weirdly unparental. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what else bothered you? What were the other like little things that, that bugged you about this movie? Well, one thing that definitely bugged me was when they found a dead dog and they their first assumption was that a skunk ate the dog. Yeah. That's that's not likely. I think they're wrong. Yeah, I it they sort of also implied that they thought a skunk had killed the dog. Oh yeah, which is extra unlikely. Out. But yeah, I'm pretty sure skunks eat like bugs and grubs <laughs> and mushrooms. <laughs> like yeah, I don't see a skunk killing or even eating the dog. I, I mean, I don't in know. Any way. They, 
they might eat dead dogs. I don't know, but that was not the implication. No, it was it was very strange. It bugged me how much because I think that was the sheriff and Loomis who found the dog because they went to Michael's so. like family home, the one where he killed his sister, what, 18 years before. It bugged me how the sheriff of this town both disbelieved everything that Loomis was telling him, even though he knew that this was a criminal who should who had escaped and should not be out and yeah. had done this horrific thing. Like, he clearly knew the history, but he, he refused to believe that anything bad was going to happen. But he also simultaneously did everything Loomis told him to do. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He was very obedient, actually. Yeah, and it, that felt very unrealistic. And then there was the added, like, I think the, the story tried to add in the, the drama of Annie, one of the first teenagers, or the first teenager to be killed. I think so. Because she was running around in her underwear and a long white <laughs> shirt that apparently she had taken from the people whose house she yeah, was babysitting I at. Yeah, so. Because she spilled something on her clothes, so she immediately had to take them all off. <laughs> right. Spilled um, something on her shirt, so she had to take all right. her clothes off. Spilled a little butter on her shirt, so she had to strip down, put on a white button-up man's shirt, and do the laundry and then run around the whole neighborhood, basically, in her underwear. Yeah, like, she, she crossed the street in her underwear. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, she was the sheriff's daughter. So yes. after she gets killed, we're seeing the sheriff run around, like, still denying, uh, nothing's going to happen, nothing's going to happen, knowing that his daughter has already been murdered by this guy he thinks isn't in town. Yeah, did he? Oh, we know that. We know he that. He did not no, ever he, find that out. No, he doesn't know. Because that should have been a big dramatic scene. There were no big dramatic scenes no, in this movie. He never finds... I mean, we don't see him learn this yeah. thing. Yeah, there was a lot of what almost dramatic, but then, you know, Michael disappears into the shadow. So Lori doesn't know that he's there, even though the kid she's babysitting mm -hmm. is like, the boogeyman is out there. Yeah. Or, you know... Basically, this kid sees Michael carry Annie's body around. Yep. He's traumatized. Nobody else sees it. And he gets in trouble for making up stories. <laughs> yeah. It's rough being a kid. Yeah. What did you think about the portrayal of the teenagers? Like, not so much Lori, who is clearly one of those teenagers who acts like an adult. Fine. Yeah. But, like, all the teenagers who were supposedly acting like teenagers. <laughs> yeah, they were. They were difficult. Their behavior didn't feel no like teenagers it didn't it was i mean there were so there was just so little there i don't know well and like everything that they did they felt more like 20 somethings okay. like they felt very it felt very casual that you know they're having sex and drinking and smoking and like they just yeah. seemed like it was that's just what they did and they were very casual about it and it was like that's just how it happened. Not, ooh, we have to sneak around behind everybody's backs and not yeah, get caught. Like, true. they didn't seem concerned in any way about being caught. Like, that little girl that Annie is supposed to be babysitting and she dumps her off over at the house where Lori's <laughs> babysitting instead. Yeah. That girl is going to tattle. You would Clearly. Think. Yeah, there were a lot of shenanigans. Yeah, but they didn't seem to feel like they were shenanigans. It was just, it was more like a mom dropping her daughter off with another mom. <laughs> I'm going to go run to the store or whatever. Yeah. Not anything secretive. You know, wait till the kid goes to bed before you start sneaking your boyfriend into her house, right? Yeah, I don't to know. get murdered. I don't know. But 
Now I'm having the serious question. Do those teenagers all seem so adult to us because now, 40 years later, 18 is treated as so much less mature? I don't know. I don't know what it was like to be a teenager in the 70s because I was little in the 70s. I mean, I think I think about things like an 18-year-old would have been without question trusted to babysit. I mean, years yeah. later when I was 18, uh, 18 years later when I was 18, <laughs> right. since I'm exactly the same age as this movie is, I was unquestionably allowed to babysit, you yeah. know, by the time I was 16 or so. Before that, with my siblings, like, I filled out my college applications entirely by myself. And I, yeah. you know, did all of these things where I was managing my life or taking on parts of managing my life as an 18-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I think about 18-year-olds now and, like, people I know who have kids who are, like, graduating from high school. And they don't have that same independence. Like, there's – the parents that I know are very much trying to help their, you know, baby bird fledgling 18-year-olds rather than, well, you've, got, you've been taking like care that, of yourself sure. since you were 15. Like, all right, go. <laughs> yeah. And as you go back through history, younger people – were more, I don't know about more mature, but more given responsibility. Right. You know? Whether they could handle it better or yeah. not, they were given it. They would send their 12-year-old into town to go buy tobacco at the general <laughs> store for them. Right. Yes. In the 1800s. <laughs> I mean, in the 80s, my sister and I would ride our bikes at least five miles away from our house to the local bar where we would buy candy and soda and ride our bikes back. And there you was... said it was candy and soda. <laughs> I mean, it was great. The candy was, was like 25 cents. You know, you could buy yeah. like like now and laters for 10 cents a piece and whatever. And ugh, I totally sound like my dad right now. Up the hill in snow both ways. But it, yeah, things have definitely changed. And I think what we expect of our children in terms of maturity has changed a lot. Yeah, I per think so. Particularly for white children. I think that that is sure. not necessarily the same for people of color, unfortunately. That was my let's take this movie way too seriously dive. Uh, what other ridiculousness do you have to say? Well, I have one one issue that I then discovered has been an issue for lots of people and that then the movie makers in later sequels tried to address with something that didn't really satisfy people and they got mad about, which is Michael Myers has been in an institution since he was six. <laughs> yes. And as soon as he breaks out, he jumps in a car and drives off totally fine. <laughs> yes, he totally. They, one of the people even said, like, he's been in an institution. Uh -huh. How would he drive? He doesn't even know how to drive. And they're like, well, nope, he did it. And lots of people have said that's crazy and whatever. And then in a later movie, there's some kind of flashback or something where you can see that he, Loomis, drives him, you know, to appointments or whatever. And he sits in the back seat and he watches very carefully how Loomis is driving. And that's supposed to be the explanation. No, that's ridiculous. That sort of goes along with the 2018 version of Halloween where Michael has been institutionalized for, I don't know, 35 years now at this point. Something. And his outside time is like an hour of standing in the sun chained yes. to an enormous block of concrete. <laughs> and yet... He gets out and he immediately is able to, again, lift up people with one arm. And, <laughs> yeah, but now like, he can strangle them. <laughs> and he has all of this physical strength still, despite the fact that he has basically been mm -hmm. 
you know, tethered in a box or in a small piece of ground for 35 years. Yeah. I guess it's because he keeps getting out and <laughs> getting exercise before he gets <laughs> captured exercise. again. <laughs> Running around town stabbing people. Although the second, the 2018 version, wasn't that like they had they had retconned everything and just gone back? Like that was supposed to happen immediately, well, 40 years later, but yeah, I don't after know. the... After the first movie, yeah. quite possibly. Huh. I mean, otherwise... I don't I know. Remember, I mean, he keeps getting killed, and he's fine. So I remember us talking about that that they that they had designed it to like disregard all of the in between yeah. movies, and it was and just like sense. Halloween. The original happened. He apparently got caught and put back, and now forty years later, he escapes again. And one year later, I'm still mad that they called the sequel to Halloween Halloween. Yeah, it's nonsense. But you know what? They called the sequel to the thing the thing. That was a prequel. Does that make it better? I'm just saying it's not a sequel. Apparently, John Carpenter does not understand how naming things works. Yeah, names are numbers. Ratings. So I didn't really get into my big thing with this movie because it's about the ratings. And that is, if you look at the scores, 78% on IMDb, 81% on Metacritic, 96% from Rotten Tomatoes critics, and 89% from fans on Rotten Tomatoes. Huge across the board. Wow. Best movie ever. Very high. And like people in the past, like Roger Ebert is famously gave it thumbs up. I don't know how many. I think he only has one thumb he gives and Siskel does the other <laughs> thumb. So I don't know. But he, he really loved it. And he's like, it's amazing scariest thing ever and i'm sure that's a product of the time and it's very different today but it's also not any good this movie's not good like the 2018 one was really good we both gave it a four it's a good movie this one is really not and it's slow and boring and the plot doesn't make sense the characters are stupid the kills are just ridiculous ridiculous and i know that before this movie so it's not like this is trying something new earlier movies were much better at all of these things Mm -hmm. like the godfather i'm gonna mention again came out (laughs) in the 70s you know people knew how to make good movies and this is not one of them they knew how to make scary movies texas chainsaw massacre i didn't really like it but it was unsettling this Mm -hmm. is not I don't understand the love for this movie, and I feel like there's something wrong there. So, yeah, it's pretty dumb. And that's my opinion of it. Apparently, it differs from every human in the world. (laughs) And I will give this one one and a half knitting needles out of five. One and a half. One and a half. There's something there. I I do think, like, he was trying for something. That idea that both Michael and Laurie are kind of, like, focused in on each other is sort of something happening. But it's just in a muddled mess of nothing. Yeah. First, I want to comment on your choice of units of measurement. Yes. Because one of the notes that I made after Lori puts the knitting needle into Michael's neck is, and that's why they don't allow knitting needles on planes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, which is slightly false because you can get knitting needles on a plane, but not big, long, pointy ones like she used. Yeah. Okay, so I agree with you about this rating. I am a little baffled at 
the high scores that it has, I'm wondering how many of those are from, like, how long ago it started garnering these scores. Like, yeah. are low, are, well, is it getting lower scores now that just aren't aren't able to counter it? Like, No, I don't think so. Like, I think there's two different camps. There's the, you know, like, Roger Ebert clearly really liked it right when it came out. So there's that. There was really people were impressed right away. And a lot of this stuff is nostalgia. It's like Rotten Tomatoes didn't start audience listings until a few years ago, or maybe 10 or 15, whatever. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that's that's nostalgia or sure. respect for the master or whatever. Or the thing that I always think happens is enough people have said that this is a great movie that people watch it and assume yeah. that it has to be a great movie. And if they don't like it, that there's something wrong with them and they can't admit that, which yeah. we've talked about before. And we're not afraid to look like idiots and not like something <laughs> that everybody else likes. Yeah. Or like something that. that everybody else hates, like House of a Thousand Corpses. Oh, that is a great movie. So I agree. I agree that there were, it was so weak in so many areas and it wasn't scary. I don't know that it would have been scary to me when, if I watched it when I was young and hadn't had a lot of horror movie experience and hadn't been jaded by all of the, you know, changes in yeah. cultural entertainment. It was so weak and it made up for, and perhaps this is why, you know, why people thought it was scary. It tries to make up for lack of actual depth in story through manipulation. It manipulates the emotions with the music, like you Definitely. mentioned before. It tries to manipulate the emotions through lots of use of shadows and the lighting and whatnot and camera motion. Like there was the one point where oh. like she was going up the stairs and the camera was just inching up the stairs. Uh -huh. Like the longer we stretch out this scene, the more <laughs> the tension is building. But at this point I'm like, Oh my God, just walk up the freaking stairs already. Like I actually made a pro a positive artistic comment about that. That at the beginning of the movie, the camera is not Michael in this scene because he's a little kid inside the house. The camera peers around the house and is handheld, kind of moving around and peeking in the windows voyeuristically. And I'm like, yeah, I see what you're doing. You're uh -huh. setting that tone. Uh -huh. Although it's kind of weird because we're not in the perspective of a killer right now. It's just happening. Right. I think they understood how to manipulate the emotions of the viewers. Mm -hmm. And they used all of those tools, but then they were using it with super cheesy melodramatic acting, yeah. a weak script, and, you know, full of lots of plot holes, and just generally not a lot of goodness behind it. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it was very disappointing. And especially since we had watched the later version first, this was particularly disappointing because I'm like, well, how did they get... I mean, clearly they've had 40 years of learning how to sure. make a scary movie better. Yeah, That's how it got so much better. But it didn't come from a good place. The original Halloween does not hold up well after 40 years. No, I don't think so. So I still like it sort of for those nostalgic reasons, I think. I think Jamie Lee Curtis, I like her. I think she was the best actor in this <laughs> movie full of people who were shaky acting and since it was her true. first movie okay like <laughs> better than better than everybody else so i'm not going to go quite as low as you but i am going to give it two 
knitting needles out of five. So it could maybe knit itself up uh, an improved version. Yeah, with my, <laughs> for, that's for not even an option with my <laughs> nope. one and a half. Nope. But it was, it was kind of sad. And it does make me wonder if I am too jaded to appreciate it. Yeah, it makes me wonder about that too. But I'm always wondering that. So I let it go. Yeah, I'm not going to worry about it too much. I do know that lots of people like it. Yeah. Just I mean, not us. Good for them. Right. I'm glad they can enjoy it. They probably don't want to see House of a Thousand Corpses in that case. <laughs> they should, though. <laughs> All right. Well, it's time to move on from this disappointing movie to... Another disappointing movie. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad we're keeping our bar low. That's my goal. Awesome. Yes. I'm going to stop myself every time I hear the word interesting because I'm tired of hearing myself say interesting, interesting. when I listen to these. 